Why is it every Wednesday? Always tired. I don't think it's every Wednesday for me. I think it's just every day for me. But you know, we can call it Wednesdays. Dude, I'm I'm tired today. I like how much sleep you get. It doesn't matter. It's not a game. What but I was, I was. We're not competing. Did you think you I was? Made trying it sound to like, like it was a game. Oh my god. Okay, I got seven hours. I'm okay. not trying to make it a competition. Bed. I, I went to bed at. I, I got off that call. I was on a quasi client call till two thirty a.m. Got off. Tried to sleep. I don't think I slept for like. I probably tossed and turned for like at least an hour. Uh, and then I woke up 20 minutes late for my 8 a.m. call. <laughs> Wait, what? An 8 a.m. Oh, call. Oh, no, you woke up late? That's the worst feeling. But, this is the worst feeling. I hate waking up late for something. It is so much worse than just being late when you're already awake. Yeah. Okay, like, let's say I'm running late, then I can text you and be like, hey, I'm I'm running late, like I'm on the train or whatever. But when you wake up late, you've got like missed calls and missed texts. It is it is very legitimately high up there on worst feelings. I set my alarm. So like wake up and know you're late. I set my alarm, but I set it for a single day. It was Tuesday and obviously today's Wednesday. So it was the right time. It was 7.57 a.m., but on Tuesday. I just set one alarm. Like I only have one alarm on my iPhone and I change that every day. <laughs> I have probably okay, show me your show me your no. Alarms. I delete I delete them every so often, but like when it's really bad, it's literally probably like fifteen alarms. But you two alarms, one that's usually the morning one, and then one is a nap one. Yo, I I think that's hella inefficient. Because you know what I do? Oh, you mean what? you have to scroll and find the but right I, time? No, because what I do is like I'm like, hey Siri, set alarm for whatever, and she does it. Or he does it because I think my series is a dude. Okay, whatever. But anyways, anyways, it doesn't matter. I love how we are already getting heated about alarm systems. This is a forecast for all how right. the rest of this Be- episode is right. going to go. Yes. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash making. Let's get into it. Okay, so my subject this week comes from Strelka Mag, and it is an article written by Ryan Madsen titled World Building Forever, Bold Ideas for Our Collective Futures. And what world building is, as defined by this author, is a visionary collaborative practice from planetary designs to pop culture, including things in architecture, filmmaking, And world building as a whole is intended to provide critical tools, methods, and inspiration for people to build future worlds. And it starts off with this quote, which I really like and kind of gives this frame for everything. Remember to imagine and craft the worlds you cannot live without, just as you dismantle the ones you cannot live within. And that's from Ruha Benjamin. So that kind of gives this really important framing, I think, about world building not as just this like creative tool for film and video games but actually a tool for 
responding to the world we live in and creating a world that we want. Okay. So a little bit more about Madsen's article. He opens by reviewing this book published by the MIT Press called The World as an Architectural Project. And it's by Hashim Sarkis, Roy Salguero, Barrio, and Gabriel Kozlowski. And the book is 50 case studies where architects, it's all architects, have imagined the future of the planet through these big world-scale projects. Okay, so they basically got this brief to say, consider this new proposal for the future of the entire planet and considering things at the largest scale. And it is kind of this impossible brief, Mm -hmm. right? And the projects in general, they all have this angle of moving away from corporations and big tech giants to what they consider to be more benevolent, adaptive ways that are like in harmony with different people groups and nature. And all of these are what Madsen himself calls world building projects, right? They're all all primarily positive, optimistic. They are. Well, I mean, they're responding to a pessimistic view. Does that make sense? Like a pessimistic view of the current state of things, but proposing You could call them almost utopias. Utopia as a word gets kind of a bad rap. rap. But they are in that vein of Mm -hmm. like, this is what the world could be like, potentially, instead of like the path Mm -hmm. that we're on. To me, what's most interesting is Madsen has this critique about that book. It kind of, the first half of the article is like a book review, right? And he has this critique about the book, which is that it just focused on architecture and design disciplines. And he says, actually, really successful world building brings in people from all creative fields and also beyond creative disciplines. So, for example, he says, if you look at the way cinema or fiction or video games or fine arts works, a lot of those incorporate world building. As you were discussing and kind of outlining the first bit of that article, my, my default thought was... I don't know how much design and architecture. Well, I, I know that they're they're aiming to incorporate more than that, but just that alone, how much of that will inherently change human behavior to fulfill this utopian perspective? However, that's not to say it's impossible because culture is a very strong thing, right? And it's it's intangible. You you are part of a culture. You can't always define it by an object or a material thing. Yeah. So. I go between different perspectives where on the one hand, like humans by virtue of defaulting to their biological needs have created a certain world. And I think it's very hard for you to change direction because you're flying the face of biology. Mm. However, culture has also proven as a really powerful way of keeping people aligned to a certain perspective or to a certain goal. Yeah. So both of them are valid. It's like, Nature versus no, nurture. I agree. I agree. I agree. I agree because, you know, one hand, the brief is a good one, I think, for architects and designers to try to attempt, you know, this brief of envision a better world on this huge scale. And, you know, it's unrealizable, right, for many reasons. But you, you attempt it anyway. Like, mm-hmm. I think that's a good creative exercise for the individual. But at the same time, it's dangerous to position architecture is going to solve poverty or hunger, you know, just like architecture alone or and, any other big like world scale. Problem. And on top of that, 
you know, maybe pre-COVID world architecture may might have had the same sort of impact on our lives, but will architecture have the same impact going forward if people don't live in cities, they stay at home more often, blah, 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 like all that other shit, right? Sure, yeah. Yeah. Actually, I, I think architecture is a very difficult and challenging thing to leverage in changing the world because I think the level of appreciation of architecture is quite low. It's one thing when... Well, but it's subliminal, though. Yes, it's subliminal, thing. yes. I think that the change when it occurs because of architecture is subconscious. Yeah. So our environment influences us in ways that we don't even understand ourselves. We probably mm -hmm. don't realize that, mm -hmm. you know, this building is making us behave this way. Yeah. 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 The quote I was going to read actually is the same critique you had, which is that architects certainly should not be forbidden to dream. But after contemplating 600 pages of unrealized and unrealizable projects that attempt to solve world scale problems, we might conclude that architecture is simply not the right medium for yeah. resolving such huge issues. Madsen goes on to say, you know, world building is basically story generating on a huge scale. Okay. So I think the difference between like just telling a story and actually like world building storytelling is really thinking about it in this extremely large, like cohesive context where there's like, histories and different people groups and languages and i think the best way to demonstrate this is in video games and cinematic universes so i don't know if you've read or watched marvel stuff no yeah didn't really expect that but you know like people call it the marvel cinematic universe yeah right and it consists of Oh yeah, it's like God, the I don't different. Know. It's like so many movies and TV shows at this point. The WandaVision is the new one that's really popular right now. Just came out on Disney Plus. This is not an ad. The Marvel Cinematic Universe is still big in people's like pop culture interests and imagination. And what's kind of incredible from a creative point of view is that all of the people involved have tried to create literally this whole universe mm. that holds together but has all of these you know different storylines different characters that live in sometimes they crisscross sometimes they don't yeah exactly yeah. So it's basically like a solar system yeah yeah, yeah 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 so that's an example of world building that i think most people will be familiar with and that the mcu is not particularly radical okay sorry like mcu is marvel cinematic oh. universe it's not particularly <laughs> radical, like not all parts of it are equally radical, but I really like this from the article, which is a discussion of Wakanda in Black Panther. Yep. Did you watch no. Black God damn it, you're putting this me entire, on blast here. This entire podcast <laughs> is just like, do you know this cultural thing? Okay, well, oh I don't need to tell you what Black Panther is though, right? Yeah, of course, I know what it is. Okay, cool. God, I'm just, people are probably hitting unsubscribe. How can they... How can they listen <laughs> to someone that parades it around as being cultured and just... <sighs> okay, so I mean, most people know Black Panther from the famous movie starring Chadwick Boseman, but actually the storyline itself began in the 1960s mm -hmm. and over time through the comic books have included numerous Black creators. And what's great about Wakanda and Black Panther is that they imagine this completely alternative 
world where black people are centered in society. Mm -hmm. And this comes from the Wakanda Dream Lab. The world of the Black Panther is so intriguing because it invites us to imagine a normal where black people have never been oppressed. It shows that we would be shining beacons of technology and brilliance. And the reason I think this is really fascinating is because it really demonstrates how something totally fictitious could affect what we imagine for ourselves. The Wakanda vision is impossible, like like sheerly impossible, because it says that all of this history of Black oppression and slavery and resource extraction from Africa doesn't exist. Yeah. Never happens. Yeah. Okay. And that's like a literal thing we cannot change about our current world unless mm-hmm. someone invents a time machine. Yes. But I think that the creative exercise of creating Wakanda and Black Panther is impactful on how both Black people and non-Black people picture a possible future. Correct. Yeah. I mean, that's the power and impact of stories, right? And that's also, it's, it's from Sapiens. It's always saying how like humans are the only species on this planet that can picture something that doesn't exist, right? Like we don't live in a reactionary state so much as we can somewhat take control. Well, I'm using a lot of generalization, but if I want to go somewhere, I can pick how I get there, what it looks like, etc. Yeah. 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 I just think it's like a different way of thinking because I think so many times we like look at a problem and we think, okay, this is what I have in front of me. Like these are the components and this is who I am as a person. But world building suggests like what if you just imagined a completely alternative setup and you don't have to think about the actual facts of who you are or the elements you're playing with and you know that what you imagine is unrealizable but through thinking about it it will provide you with a better answer using what you do have totally makes sense but i'm drawing i'm attempting to draw a reference from something we talked about and we had differing opinions on. Do you remember that lady wrote a book that was, uh, and it was a fictionalized- Are we really going to talk about American Dirt right now? But it's it's similar, right? But I don't think it's world building. It's not, it's not world fictitious. Build- okay. Because if, if you put the parameters of world build- building around something utopian and optimistic, then yes, it yeah. doesn't. In the context of this conversation, I would stick to like utopian and optimistic and fantastical. Basically trying to create a better future. And leveraging stories as a way to get there. I think it's trying to create a better future, but the world building doesn't necessarily, I think Wakanda has to be the best example because Wakanda is saying like a completely different history. It's not even like what the world could look like from this moment forward. It's saying all of the history of the world is different Mm. in, in a totally fictitious sense. But that influences or that will, you know, change the way you make decisions about the reality you live in Mm -hmm. oh one more thing that i thought was really good from this article which i really which is that the author believes world building is only most effective when it's collective so it's a collective effort rather than a single solo person and he says World building is perhaps most profoundly instrumental as a tool to create collective visions, designs, or strategies for addressing the future of our planet. Diverse teams of creator participants can assimilate contributions from a broad range of disciplines and genres. 
including architecture and urban planning, but also the sciences, information technology, programming, science fiction, gaming, industrial design, critical theory, and more. Does that really need to be said, though? I mean, I would maybe I'm just so used to like not crowdsourcing, but actually understanding that you need a lot of different perspectives to build the best outcome. I think you are. And we've talked about this so much, you know, like you bring up subjects about related to unexpected connections all the time. But I don't think it's as obvious as it might be to us too. And I think what's additional here that I don't even think the two of us do all the time is bringing in people, like a collection of people from different industries and backgrounds together Mm. as opposed to like consulting with someone you know like i think and i know maybe not a lot of our work allows for it sometimes we do a project and you think oh it'd be great to consult this neurosurgeon so oh you know i'll find a contact to a neurosurgeon for an hour and a half i'll speak to them for an hour and a half get their feedback like incorporate that into my project but i think this this is more foundational yeah this is like Almost like a league of people, you know? I like that. I like that. (laughs) Like I'll get a neurosurgeon, an architect, a chef, a microbiologist. I don't know. I'm going to get them in a room together. They're going to talk to each other. It's not me briefing and like, like you said, like the 90 minute conversation with each one of them. But seeing what happens when. I mean, I've been in situations where that has been the case, albeit there hasn't been a central goal that we're trying to solve or a central problem. Oh, are you thinking about HIDA? Yeah. Yeah. Like Focus was, I went on this trip a few years ago that was run by uh, Yan Chip Chase and Craig Maud. And it was very similar. It was a bunch of people from different backgrounds that weren't necessarily there to solve a problem so much as share an experience like a weekend. Yeah. I mean, it's like that, but I don't know. I don't know what the brief would be, but that plus a brief that everyone puts their minds towards i don't think it'd be that hard to program it's the hard part is the logistics like yeah getting everyone in the same room i don't know what comes out of it necessarily like i think it's a great exercise i, I don't know what you do with whatever you produce i mean the thing that i don't i don't know it doesn't have to be that goal specific yeah i mean the thing that we worked on uh like that ad we did for the newspaper was kind of that but in a very specific lane it was like there is a problem and then send the brief out to four people and then have a little bit of a chit chat afterwards about people's work to see how it can be improved. Yeah. Except that everyone's backgrounds were very adjacent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like creative agency well, I mean, people. We were, t- we were short on time, but just making that distinction where it's like, you know, there's a lot of creative residencies out there where they bring together writers from around the world or fine artists or whatever it is but it's usually people in the same industry so yeah 10 writers go to this cottage in maine and hang out for like four weeks you know this is real like writing residencies oh okay yeah or fellowships things like that which which i'm sure is good for like deepening your practice but it would be super cool maybe this already exists i didn't check if there were like world building creative programs where it was people cross industries and that was their brief yeah to envision I these told like jason kim this a friend of ours you've you've never met but i've mentioned him a lot he has a second residence in the rural part outside of daegu 
in Korea. Yeah. And he was always like, yeah, it'd be cool if this was revitalized because a lot of countryside across Asia, I mean, anywhere is going through this rapid extinction process where people are getting older, new people aren't moving in, big cities are kind of swallowing everything, right? Yeah. But that would be an example of like an opportunity. I mean, you're kind of seeing it here and there of people wanting to like build these new utopias on a smaller scale. Or what if, you know how in the Discord we've been kind of like unjust, but also not, I think, kicking around the idea of going to Taiwan? Yeah. Some, like next year, sometime in longer future, guys. So not to say I want to like give us homework, but maybe there is a creative opportunity there. Yeah, that'd be dope, actually. All right, cool. Tell us what you got. All right. All right. My topic this week is a bunch rolled into one, but under the guise of NFTs. So this is in some ways a follow-up to a conversation we had a few weeks ago with Beeple, an artist that ran this huge and successful, very successful NFT art campaign where he was selling art that he had created as NFTs. So before we get into it, what are NFTs? Yes, Eugene, tell right. us. What so are NFTs? An NFT is essentially a unique crypto token that has unique properties to it. Why I say unique is because the flip side of it is a fungible token. So mm -hmm. a fungible token is like one US dollar, serves the same function, interchangeable, has no special properties. Like yes. the, the one US dollar, US dollar is the, is same. the same. Yep. Got you. So an NFT is a yeah. non-fungible token. So you can also program select permissions into it as well. So an example would be if I issue a token and it gets transacted, the person who minted the token, who created the token might be able to take a fee off of it, right? So sure. let's say, I mean, we'll get into it and make more sense afterwards and I use uh, some examples of use cases. How do NFTs work in a general sense? So in what does it operate on? So generally speaking, NFTs, as far as I know right now, are only on Ethereum. So there's the ERC-20 tokens, which is the most... What is Ethereum? So Ethereum is a blockchain. Okay. Okay. So behind the scenes of an NFT is ERC-20. Is that correct? No. So ERC-20 is basically tokens that run on Ethereum. So they could okay. also not... They're different from Ethereum as... Uh, as a token. So for example, like a lot of utility tokens that serve a purpose for something would be on ERC-20. But when you get into the realm of NFTs, you have ERC-721s and ERC-1155s. So like ERC-721 would be an example of a non-fungible that has a unique property. So like CryptoKitties, the original sort of NFT craze was built on ERC-721. Okay. And then you have like newer properties like ERC-1155. And in that, it allows you to batch stuff together. Okay, so I don't know if you're going to get into this, but yeah. I think a big question that people have about NFTs is, can I make one and how do you make one? Yes, you can make it yourself. As of late, there have been a lot of like off-the-shelf options where you can just go to a site and have something minted and you just have to pay for it with Ethereum. It's actually quite straightforward but because of the current 
value of Ethereum, because of the current value of ETH, it's actually quite expensive. And that's a byproduct of like what you call like gas fees. Okay, so besides the fact that I can pay to have one made, how does one actually get made? Okay, like for example, so what I'm trying to get here, get to here is like the actual manufacturing of an NFT. Yeah. So like a car, like a physical car, people yeah. know is made from metal and I actually gears. Don't know. You don't know? Like, I, mean, I don't I've know been, either. I thought you would process. know. Well, I just know that like I it's like actually not that difficult, but it, Oh, I this has not worked out the way I wanted it to work. <laughs> Hold on a second. It's like not hard at all, but it's also like But I think that's a part of confusion here. I genuinely think that this is a real like confusing question that people have. Like, what's the difference between this and like copy pasting a file? Do you know yeah, what I mean? Okay. I, I know I, I know I'm going on to this. And I know it's like not even about use cases. We haven't even gotten to the art applications of NFTs. Yeah. But I genuinely think that there is a sense for people who are not like deep reading about NFTs that this is just like fabricated. What do you mean by fabricated? Like what is the underlying thing that proves its existence and that makes this like a real manufactured oh, thing? Oh, got it. Does I mean, that question make sense? It's like a smart contract. So does an NFT exist in code, like in coded text that is unique and that lives somewhere yeah. on a server? Yeah. And that That's coded text it. is different per and NFT. And it has different properties okay. associated with it. And that's so from what's, there it could be and like, when you say it's minted, that's the thing that's made. Correct. It's like what's outputted. Okay. And the ERC 721 721 backs that up. Is that's the, the context in which the code exists? Yeah. So ERC 721 is different than ERC 20 because ERC 20 is fungible. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think that's sufficient for me. I mean, it's actually a really good question because. If if you were to ask me this, like I generally understand how it works, but I wouldn't necessarily be able to explain it. And I think that's actually a good indicator of how well you know something is how clearly you can explain it. Yeah. So like I think that for me, it's always been a sort of a top level application of it from a creative standpoint. But once you start getting more technical, like like I've never really had that sort of technical know how. The reason I ask the technical questions is related to those creative use cases, because in order for all of us to agree on the value of, of NFTs, we have to, I think that there has to be some fundamental understanding of what is in existence that is different than before. Mm-hmm. Because on the surface, I'm not saying this is my POV, but yeah. on the surface, I think it can look like people just making images. Correct. So I think what's different is that when you have a digital asset that's an NFT, it's not like you going onto a site and buying an MP3 that you can upload and use on your video, mm. right? There's actual an identifier behind it that makes it unique. Mm. And then from there, there's a lot of different ways that you can apply that. I guess maybe okay. I can get into yeah, use cases. Let's do it. So there's a lot of different use cases. It could be in the realm of art. So we've talked about this before where an artist could sell a seven layer 
Photoshop like file. Async art. Yeah. We talked about this a couple of And then from ago. there, like, you know, Sharice owns layers two through four, and I own one, five, six, seven. And I can manipulate that how I want to manipulate it and create a certain outcome. So that'd be an example of like the art world, collectibles. This is another big one that that's happened a lot. This is something that comes with a little bit of a I don't know. There's it's like a lot of speculation around it. Right. I think people are like rushing in because it seems like the lowest barrier to entry to get into the NFT world. It's like you have a piece of artwork or you can immediately turn it into an NFT and s- turn around and sell it. And you can guarantee its provenance, where it came from, all that stuff. I've seen a lot of artists in our circles get in on this in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Like, I mean, people were already doing it prior, but this month it really went through the roof. Yeah. Last two weeks have been crazy. Also, one thing that's been really popular has been NBA Top Shots. Have you been following this? No. NBA Top Shots. Not at all. What? NBA Top Shots are basically digital uh, collectibles in terms of like NBA cards, but they're NFTs. Okay. So, so like athlete trading cards? Yeah, exactly. Oh, interesting. But that's been pretty big as of late. But the thing is, is that. That's funny. Yes, it's an NFT, but at the same time, like I think it's essentially just adult gambling and the reason why i put air quotes around it okay. is because it's not that different from a loot box yeah right? no you it's get not a, it's basically the same thing yeah totally yeah do you know about this really popular game lately called genshin impact this is a loot box thing this is not an nft thing but genshin impact's definitely a pay-to-play game yeah. okay and their loot boxes the probability so so low Oh, of really? like getting the items you want, but people pay big money. Yeah. That's also adult gambling in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. So other applications could be on from on the logistical side with fashion. So for example, having an NFT associated with a garment could guarantee its scarcity and authenticity. I'm pretty into that application, right? to be honest. Music. This is one that happened more recently. Let's say you are a producer and you release a beat. Okay. You could sell the whole stem i think that's the right terminology like the whole stem the whole track whatever as one thing and let's say i buy it i could have full ownership of that for the most part and choose to use it as i wish and or do it in a way where let's say you sold it to me and then i could apply it however i want to apply it and you could just get like a licensing fee off of it Interesting. so there's different ways around that so I think at the very core, ownership is a big part of this. Yeah. Because the general sentiment is that platforms take most of the cut when it comes to creative <sighs> output. Yeah. Weirdly, when you said the music application, I immediately thought, oh, that sounds great for people who are trying to protect their creative property, you know, people not stealing their beats, but also kind of not great for like freedom of remix and reuse mm-hmm. maybe like stops people yeah, even I mean, more from depends, riffing like, off of existing things if you allow people to license out the work then it's different than it just being collectible yeah so jock green is a musician and he recently released a track as an nft and this is what he said in this series of tweets this nft represents the av clip but also the publishing rights to the eventual song release in perpetuity I got out of a long, pretty bad publishing deal with a big company last year, a big personal and professional victory. Don't feel they brought much value to my work. 
I'm excited and scared of what possibilities and promises lie in this field and for arts and culture in general. I have a lot of hopes and fears tied to it. Much rather think and talk about what might happen than sitting around feeling dread. This actually reminds me. So we did a casual making Discord hangout audio and it was me, Ryan, Spencer, and Dean. We talked about NFTs. One of the three of them, I'm really sorry, guys. I don't remember which one said that it's like masters, like the yeah, NFT yeah, is yeah. equivalent to record masters. Mm-hmm. And that really helped me when I was thinking about music and NFT. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, one way to also look at it is if I am a photographer and I create an NFT and the Associated Press use my photo and I can get a, like a royalty or a licensing fee off of that. I mean, the one that I'm most interested in that is slowly coming to light is nfts around digital assets and games i feel bad for you sometimes because you're always consistently ahead that's a compliment by yeah, the way yeah, yeah. you're always consistently ahead of the curve eugene has been telling me about essentially nfts in games what feels like years it genuinely is possibly years now remember when you were really big into that random app that you and Nicole had. Oh, um, Zepetto? Yes, Zepetto. And you were. Zepetto is like a digital avatar type app and it's been replaced. In some ways, there's one called Genies that's similar. Sure, it doesn't matter. But whatever that time period was, you were so excited about this idea of e- essentially exchangeable, like cross platform exchangeable items yeah. within games. Yeah. But. Unfortunately, I just found out that it's going to be very difficult to execute. Logistically? Yeah, because the main reason why it's so difficult... This goes back to a technical question, it sounds like. Yeah, it's a technical issue because I think there's there's different things that need to happen. Number one, gaming platforms need to be open to having external things and items brought into their world. Yeah. Right? That's like kind of like quasi-licensing. Yeah. Number two is from a actual rendering and design perspective so for example you own the nft for these nikes now you have to take those same nikes and render them so they look accurate to the art direction of call of duty meets fortnite meets whatever right yeah animal crossing which is three very different game aesthetics and functionality yeah so i think that actually that i mean it's not impossible it's not impossible it's It's just a lot lot of of coordination yeah so you were saying that's what you're most excited about? I think that's the part I see the most excitement. So the reason why I'm less interested or excited about the art one is because in some ways, yes, you can sell these new digital art assets that are unlike what you can see in the real world because they're 3D animated. That's really hard to reproduce on a print. Yeah, right? I've seen, I've noticed that as a trend in the NFT art that is often 3D modeled stuff. Yeah. Fancy animation things. Yeah. I always wonder if you're not buying art in a pre NFT hyped world, what is the driver to buy it in a post world beyond speculation and hype? I was just going to say speculation. Beyond that. So that's why I'm like, if the speculation dies down, then will people still be buying? Yes, they will be. But I think that one thing that's just challenging for me to wrap my head around is that collectibles for sure are something that people get behind. But in terms of that form of collection, does opening up an app and like swiping through and scrolling through like a list of items 
confer the same level of excitement as me looking at my looking at all my trading cards like laid yeah, out yeah, yeah. or all my beanie babies. I mean, that's what our friend Francesco said right before we started recording. Yeah. We had a friend drop in and say, hey, what are your subjects? He got real excited about he, NFTs. He got real excited about NFTs. And the first thing he said was, I would not buy an NFT for art appreciation. Like I would, he would buy it for speculation. Yeah. But that's not a way for him to appreciate art. But I did like what his perspective was on maybe our physical spaces, environment. Yeah. You know, spaces and things haven't caught up to NFTs. So he was saying, like, he what if you had a projector? Yeah, and a projector that projected three D, like a hologram, basically. Yeah. I mean, the one that I think is most interesting, and the one that I'm I'm kind of working on is just basically NFT NFT AR filters. Oh, okay. So it's like, like Snapchat. Yeah, but think about it from the perspective of you're wearing. I mean, super easy. Like you're wearing a Palace T-shirt, and because of the ability to implement some sort of animation. Palace logo is doing like a, a rotation. Oh, you mean in in actual real life? Yeah, you have to because otherwise. Like, so, so I'm wearing a tee right now, which has like a little graphic on the um, corner. So yeah. like that with an AR filter would change. And it would animate and it would do because something. Because I purchased the NFT. Correct. Interesting. And then that could be resold. That's the easiest way. I mean, I don't think that's like the ultimate one, but. Like for me, if you don't have the ability to, to create social proof from it, I think you're minimizing its overall value. Yeah. Right. If you can't share it, then I think you're minimizing its value. I, the way I've always used it is there's a lot of discussion around interoperability for th different protocols that work in different worlds, right? Yeah. So interoperability in the realm of video games would be like, does this game item work across all games? Obviously not because there's rules, but maybe on a skin level it could. But to take a step back from that, like... The reason why the physical items we buy in the real world are so impactful because is because from a platform level, the real world has such seamless interoperability in the sense that I can take my Nikes and bring them all around the world. I can bring them to different social settings, all these things, and still confer yeah. arguably the same status. Yeah. Okay. So, you know... You were saying how inter games would be very complicated because of all of the different publishers, developers, art styles, game but engines, etc. Actually, I do think that NFTs in a single game could already be really impactful, and that's probably where it will start. So recently was BlizzCon, which is the conference that Blizzard puts on. Blizzard makes World of Warcraft and Diablo. A lot of people are into those two games. Yeah. Okay, this this definitely has enough mass. So all it takes is to have... Get a game publisher. Yeah, all yeah. it takes is for Blizzard to like be, you know, we're going to invest in developing NFTs within our game. And yeah. th I, I think that could work yeah. really well. And so, people stream their games and they yeah. t share screenshots. And actually Diablo has cross-platform. Yeah. Interoperability, which is pretty huge. So Engine, who did the ERC-1155 token, they recently introduced NFTs with Microsoft and Roblox. Oh, Roblox. Yeah. Yes, Roblox is huge. Yeah, yeah. So that's like an example, but that's not branded. I think that right now, if you look at adoption, adoption comes when people that built a career outside of the NFT space come into the NFT space, mm. which is happening. Totally. Because I think that when you are too quick to a nascent or emerging 
platform, you you almost need time for things to be validated before people jump in. I mean, pre Elon Musk, Bitcoin. It's kind of an example. I mean, it was I, pretty I, big even before Tesla got in on it. I mean, it was big, but it was also like I think institutional, and in this case, like big artists, kind of are. Yeah. They're not institutional, but they're of of that same size. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean the the fact that everyone in this room prior to recording got super excited about NFTs, I think, is indicative. Yeah. So, for me, like I said, I think art NFTs are the lowest hanging fruit. But I think that ultimately, and this is something that was brought up in the Discord by, I'm kind of laughing as I say his name, Drew Kaki and uh, Mahari, and a lot of the conversation was around. We know Drew's actual name. What? But, but his, his username is Drew Kake. Okay, sure. Continue. Yeah. Anyways, the discussion was around what's going to happen as it goes mainstream. So I want to go back to what I mentioned. And NFTs are a tool more than anything. And there's an existing human behavior that NFTs, I don't think, will overcome. And that's the valuation of content in general. So what I mean by that is media for me is a good example because I think media has tried quite a few different ways to monetize. It's could be subscription, advertisements, micropayments. Like if you don't value it, then it's just hard. It's not to say that you cannot have glimmers of hope like the New York Times, but that's definitely like a bifurcation. It doesn't truly matter what payment gateway you use or what your subscription model is priced at if people don't value it correct but at the end it's you know how much or less they value what you make and there's feels like this ideal vision of nfts creating uh changing the way people actually value things yeah but well, i guess both you and i are saying that's not super likely and here's another question too if i have the opportunity to buy a animated GIF, a regular sort of piece of graphic design or a photo. Do you think psychologically people have already created a hierarchy of what they'll pay for in their minds? And does that mean that photography, because I think photography is the cheapest one, right? Because it's the easiest, like everyone thinks they can shoot a photo and they can because they have a camera in their hand, right? Yeah. So what does that mean? Yeah. Well, well, also... Mahari and Drew were asking about what happens to the regular creator, just a normal person making something. And I'm not super optimistic that it changes a lot. Yeah. Like maybe it changes a little bit in terms of how you get paid. Yeah. Okay. But it, like you're saying, I think it doesn't change the fact that a, a art collector is still going to say this Wolfgang Tilsman piece is worth more than mm-hmm. this Eugene can. Yeah. 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 Another thing too, when you have a lot of these like limited editions is that in light of a lack of liquidity, meaning the ability for you to change hands quickly, sell it. Yeah. It's quite difficult because like, what's the fair price to pay? Right. It's not like there's. I mean, but you're, aren't you super into that? We talked about this like a couple weeks ago. Yeah. yeah, You know, I think individual price determination, but it's also hard when you only have one piece on the market. Right. Yeah. That could be difficult. So in short, theoretically, every graphic designer has a massive body of work they can turn into an NFT tomorrow. So what does that mean when you have a massive amount of supply? What I do like currently, and this is something I've said on the side, 
is that because of the current costs of minting an NFT, which is quite high, because of just network congestion. So basically, the more gas you put towards uh, a transaction, the the more likely it'll go through. Because there's so much going on, the cost of minting is is relatively high. So that means that if you're a small asset developer, and I mean that like, let's say you're a, a game developer and you have like a hammer that's like the equivalent of 10 US dollars, it's actually really hard to get people to buy into transacting because if their transaction fees are $25, that's like more than the cost of the actual item. Totally. Right. So I think that does push people a certain way because it's only the people that have enough of a namesake that they can sell a $3,000 piece like a Beeple. I do look at Beeple as perhaps like this next generation like cause type artist because they'll be the cause of this NFT generation. Or perhaps if every artist comes into this world, then it doesn't really matter. Well, no, I mean, cause is not the only artist who does work like him. So no, I think no, it's no. still a relevant I, w- metaphor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's kind of like the, well, maybe I should take that back. I think what I'm trying to say is that he's kind of the the leading artist for this movement right now. Yeah. Do you want to mention another caveat about NFTs in relation to energy usage? Yes. So that's one thing that's always been an issue with crypto has mm. been the energy usage. and. Yeah. Honestly, I don't really know if there's any, I mean, <laughs> the the sort of uh, crypto POV would be like, well, the US Treasury uses a lot of energy too. I mean, across the board, there's a lot of energy usage regardless. Yeah. Right. No, I mean, yes, we're all using energy. Yeah. But there is still like more and less energy. And as Bitcoin blows up and yeah. as NFTs become, you know, mainstream Especially this is going to become a yeah. bigger concern yeah more and more people are going to say what is the cost in terms of energy resources mm-hmm. and what is the climate effect like this is this is a for sure going to be a talking point over I, it was already a talking point to yeah. be honest continuing continuing talking i points. honestly don't really know what to say to that oddly <sighs> enough, i'm out of an opinion because i think that the are you really going to argue that crypto is net positive yeah you could argue that but is that a sufficiently strong argument it's not right like sharice is like trying to shake her head no i don't think so i mean is decentralized finance all that stuff that comes with crypto is that something that is sufficiently strong enough is like giving an opportunity to the unbanked sufficient like that's what i'm trying to say is like kind of looking at what the what the alternative future is i think part of the which weirdly goes back to my subject. I think part yeah. of the reason you and I can't give a definitive opinion here is because we don't actually know what the energy cost is and who it's costing. Who is paying for this energy usage? The global citizens. But just rolled my eyes super hard <laughs> at Eugene. Like, I think with those tangible facts, then we could make some better decisions. So a lot of miners are traditionally set up in places where they have more economical electricity. So near hydro dams, wherever the energy grid is like, access to energy is cheaper. Mm. But I don't know. It's like, it's always going to be a philosophical sort of debate around that. Like regardless of how you look at it, it's like they're, yeah, I mean, what, what I would love to hear like a counterpoint. I mean, actually, weirdly, this really does go back to my subject because this would be a great world building exercise to get a bunch of experts in different fields together to put together a world running off of nfts 
you know, yeah. what if there was really on a very large scale adoption of blockchain NFT technology in everything, what would be the result? Would that group of people come up with the calculations and say, this is what it looks like? Yeah. One thing I have been thinking a lot about is what value does tokenization have? There's always going to be some sort of platform cost, right? Is tokenization really just going to drive down the platform take? Because, you know, right now, what was the whole uh, argument around Substack? It was like 10%, mm. right? Is it more about just putting more money in the pocket of the creator? Because that's another thing that crypto has also been guilty of is, do I need something that's decentralized or can I just run it out of an Excel spreadsheet that's centralized? Right. And I think not everything needs to be decentralized. Cause I've, I've been having the same argument as well. And this argument has pertained to social tokens. So for example, when making release a social token, how will that differ from a Patreon and where will it be potentially more valuable or where will it, where will it actually be beneficial to the community? And those are questions I think that in some ways, like I, we've kind of admitted and I don't want I, don't, like, I just don't want to come across like we're just trying to like wipe our hands clean of any challenges that may come forth. But oh, well, it was something it was bound to happen. Right. Because I think the challenge is more around does tokenizing a community have an inherent impact, a positive impact versus just running a Patreon? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's very difficult because I think one of the big challenges right now is like everything in crypto is about increasing the price. No one has really thought about just increasing the and improving the experience. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that's a spot where we're trying. I mean, that's a discussion I call ahead today. That 8 a.m. call was like around that. Like All right. Half. Yeah, no, that's plenty. So? That's probably more discussion of NFT than some of our listeners were ready for. Um, yeah, thank you for all the technical info. That's a good place to wrap things up for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at makean.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at sharice at makean.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at makean.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.